Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yeah! You know, the last couple of weeks we spent talking about the temple, and I drew a nice little diagram of it up here for you. This is Herod's temple-ish. That's very, can't overemphasize how rough the drawing is, approximation. But um, this would have been the, the temple that Jesus would have visited. Uh, what it, what it basically the basic outline and format of it. So it gives you a sense. It's much bigger than Sol- the actual temple itself is about the same size as Solomon's temple, uh, which was the the first temple. You know when they moved from tabernacle tent to physical standing building that you could not move around. Um, but everything else is much 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 bigger. Uh, so you know uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed in the exile when the Babylonians came in and wiped out the entire city, and then they rebuilt it under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership. But after the rebuild, it was always kind of rinky-dink. It was pretty, from what we can tell, anyway, it was pretty uh, uh, plain compared to Solomon's temple. And then when Herod the Great was ruling over Israel, uh, when he was, you know, Rome's client king, he kept building things to make Rome happy because, you know, you do things to make your boss happy. But since Rome was a pagan government, that made the Jewish people really mad. So the way that Herod placated them was he basically did like a multi-bajillion dollar renovation of the new temple and made it actually, once Herod was done pouring money into it, it was one of the most beautiful temples in the entire world. It rivaled the temples in Rome and in Athens and in Corinth, you know, some of the great cities of the day and Jerusalem. People are like, where? Where is a good temple? Where's, you know, where's Jerusalem? Uh, is that kind of, they couldn't, you know, couldn't believe it. So really it gave the Jewish people something to be very proud of. So then they're like, well, I mean, you know, here it's not all bad. I don't like him, don't get me wrong, but I mean, he's, you know. So anyway, uh, but we talked, we talked a lot about this building and how it, how it was sort of the symbolic center of Jewish culture and Jewish thought and Jewish religion, you know how how it, how it symbolically stood for not not just uh, you know not just a place to worship God, but it represented the world, it represented their nation, it represented their home, and it represented their, even their individual bodies. And so, maintaining the order of the temple was so important because it was it was their way of maintaining the world. It was their worship at the temple was their way of participating with God in. Uh, in maintaining the world and in, in restoring creation and, and, you know, reversing the effects of sin that we see, you know, from Genesis 3 on forward. So tonight we're going to be looking more specifically at the sacrifices and sort of some of the mechanics of what went on in the temple and, again, how their worship, they under, how they understood it to, to do that. And then, of course, we'll be talking about what that means for us uh, more specifically next week as well. So it's going to be a, a really fun couple of weeks. I'm very excited about it. Uh, first, though, tell me a little bit about your homework. I had you do uh, John 9 was one of the big passages. Uh, we talked a lot last week about how in the Gospel of John, Jesus' body was the new temple, right? And he kept talking about, you know, he said, tear the temple down in three days and I'll build it again. And they're like, how could you possibly, you know, this took decades to make so awesome. How could you possibly tear this down and then build it again in three days? And then there's a little editorial comment that says, well, he was talking about his body, but no one got that till later um what about i also asked you this was the one i thought was really interesting to compare that picture in the from the cw uh for all those all those beautiful actors and actresses to the images of a beautiful man and a beautiful woman that we find in song of songs or song solomon depending on how you whatever your bible says um the reason i the reason i chose those two particular texts is because the bible doesn't seem to be overly concerned with what people look like um the most you might you know we know esau's hairy that's about it you know, so other than the fact that he probably had a beard, we're not, uh, you know, uh, 
Um, so it's interesting that we get some actually fairly lengthy, especially for a biblical text, descriptions of these two people and what they look like through the eyes of their lover. Uh, so what did you notice as you compared uh, a stereotypical picture of beautiful people from our culture to a picture of beautiful people from the biblical culture? What stuck out to you? What do you think was interesting? Okay, like what? Well, that, you know, it, it was almost like they had to be perfect in the way he's describing him and she's describing him, or vice versa. Yeah. That they were flawless, and that's where those pictures are from the CW. But yet, on the other hand, I took from it that there was some reference to holiness in a way okay. that he was describing, and she was describing where. I never watched CW, so I really am only going by that picture. Absolutely. Like Lisa said, nobody was smiling. <laughs> no, you have to scowl. That's pretty. Yeah, where, you know, this reading song, song and songs, it was sort of an uplift. Okay. smile on their face. That... Good. Yeah. Um, something that I found very fascinating, was it's in a, in a book called uh, Eve's Revenge. It's by a, uh, a scholar named Lillian Barger, or Berger, Barger, I think it's Barger. Uh, she pointed out that the thing, and what, what I actually, if, if we had more time to spend on this, I would have had you do, uh, is if you try to draw a picture of either of the persons described in Song of Songs, it gets really weird really fast. Because it's like your eyes are like doves. And your hair is like a flock of goats. You know, and so when you start to draw this, it, it just gets strange if you try to do a, you know, a literal depiction. And we understand that, you know, obviously it's a metaphor that some mutant animal monster was not coming out of the hills you know to be declared beloved by this person in the poem um but what her point was was that when you say someone's eyes are like doves because remember this is a this is like a a poem that was in in the scriptures and so young men and women who are coming into their sexuality and are learning what it means to be a sexual being are using this poem i mean it's, it's in their bible right and they're hearing it read in public and their parents are discussing it with them and all that kind of stuff and so this is forming their kind of in, in a way their sexual imagination their imagination of what it means to be a body and what it means to be beautiful right and so when it says your eyes are like doves well what does that mean i don't know it, something yeah i mean right it's, it's clearly good but it's pretty abstract and so the the neat thing about that is that any young woman could imagine that her eyes are like doves right no matter what shape they are or whether they're asymmetrical or, or whatever it's a metaphor, so that's fine. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Okay, I mean, that's apparently good. Um, I wouldn't want to be called goatee, but whatever, uh, you know. Um, but the point is, like, that does, again, that's kind of, like, I don't know, weird. And, and again, abstract. So any woman could imagine that, you know, that, that this poem is being read to her, right? That, 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 the, that the lover in the poem is singing this to her and that she could find, be found beautiful because beauty is metaphorical. It's, it's abstracted. Compare that to today, young women are explicitly told exactly what beautiful is, right? And every, every time they walk past the newsstand, yeah. every time they turn on the television, yeah. it's not abstract, it's very concrete. You have to, your body has to be a certain shape, your eyes have to be a certain way, you're not allowed to smile, right? And, 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 th- and when, when you see, I mean, this, this is what forms our imaginations, and, and vice versa, young men are told what counts as beautiful, right? And so... Whereas in a lot of the ancient world, beauty was abstract. And you see this, right? When you see 
uh, statues and paintings and stuff like that from before the age of print media, um, all kinds of different shapes and sizes of men and women are considered beautiful and praiseworthy. And you see a narrowing of that as you move forward into our contemporary day to where the body is now being restricted. And that's, again, that's why to me, the, the idea of airbrushing is so uh, damaging because again, even the, even the models that we're holding up as beautiful don't actually look like that. They're being airbrushed even more so that literally no one can ever feel beautiful you know, in our culture based on the standard that we're upholding. You always have to be a little bit thinner or a little bit paler or tanner depending on your skin tone at the, at the beginning. And, you know, uh, when we were in uh, the United Arab Emirates a few months ago, my wife and I found skin whitening cream all over the place because Arab women are brown and that most of the beautiful images they see are from America and our models are white. And so while American women are mostly trying to get tan... Arab women are mostly trying to get whiter. Well, and they have the most beautiful, skin. Not according to our advertising. Oh, my gosh. It is messed up. <laughs> um, so, I would prefer that we go back to using the scriptures as our standard of beauty. Uh, and, and something you brought up is very important, is that also character is a big component of, of beautiful. Uh, not today. Um, but, but then it was. Uh, what virtue was considered beautiful? The Proverbs, the famous Pro- Proverbs 31 woman, right? Which Proverbs 31 was a, uh, actually a poem that husbands recited over their wives, praising them, right? She, said, oh, she does this and she does this and look how wonderful she is, right? Um, m- much of the Proverbs 31 woman is, a, it's, it's virtues. It's, it's things that she does or characteristics that she embodies. It's not how long her legs are or how wide her hips are or, so, or something like that, right? Uh, so anyway. Once again, I think the Bible has a better idea of what's going on than our culture does in this particular case, uh, and in most cases. So anyway, when we're talking about body, I think that's something that's really interesting to talk about is how, what our culture does with bodies, you know, and that our culture tries to basically convince you that no matter what your body looks like, it's not right. And of course, that's mostly good for the people selling products that are convincing you that they can make your body look right. So um, brings in the ad dollars, but it's pretty bad for our souls. Um, yeah. Solomon is, you know, the infatuation and/or the love is blind mm-hmm. concept. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and again, there's a reason this is an epic love poem, right? This is what this is what relationships aspire to is this idea that their beloved is 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 intentionally being seen through rose colored glasses and they might not be perfect to anyone else, but they're perfect to me. And that's what matters because they're my beloved. They're not your beloved. I don't care what you think about it. No. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what made it work. <laughs> I, mean, you, well, I mean, somebody can be very handsome in the world's standards, but be horrible in their personality. And I don't know, I've never met anyone that married someone on, based on their looks. No, but I would, I would suggest to you that in much of our stories that we tell, movies and TV shows and stuff like that, that is why they... I mean, in most romantic comedies... You know that they've fallen in love when they consummate for the first time, right? Have sex for the first time. And, and most, most romantic comedies, I mean, it's within a day, a week, a couple weeks. Like, there's just not really enough time. I mean, we all know this, right? When you first meet someone that you're kind of attracted to, you are not your real self. You're your best possible version of yourself. 
because you're trying to impress them, right? And then you know it takes, it takes time for you to get comfortable enough with each other to let the ugly parts of you out. And, um, and it's not, it's just, you know, most, most romantic comedies, that, that script that works, that, sell, that gets people in the movie theaters, it doesn't, it doesn't admit that. It doesn't let, it doesn't let that, there be space for that. So, um, I mean, I agree with you, Jeannie, but, that, I mean, that's, it's messed up, you know? <laughs> so, all right. So that's fun. Body. We're going to come back to body tonight and especially a lot uh, next week. Think what? Well, I mean, yeah, they use metaphors. I mean, we would not probably say your hair looks like a flock of goods today because, for one thing, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've seen a flock of goats, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, these 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 metaphors obviously meant something. Right. Well, and again, again, this is. I mean, what you're getting here is like the greatest love poem that was ever written in Hebrew, right? I mean, I don't think that guys just walked around being like, yo, babe, nice sparrows. Like, I don't think these were like pickup lines or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there was, there was certainly like a popular level discourse about attractiveness and stuff. The other, the other thing you have to remember is that um, women did not go out in public Hardly ever. And when they did, they were covered, usually all except, very similar to a lot of Muslim cultures today. That's how ancient, ancient women uh, in the Middle East all did. And so most of the time, the first time you ever saw what your wife looked like was after you were married, when you were consummating your marriage for the first time in the middle of your wedding ceremony. That was when she took off her veil and let her hair down. And there it was. Yeah, you both kind of hoped that the other one was attractive to you. <laughs> if not, you still had to make babies. That was the way it was. So... Um, very different from how we do today. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and this, okay, this is a thing, right? Okay. For, and Jeannie's comment gets to this, but in our day, there's this idea that attraction and romance have to precede a relationship. And that if you're not attracted to the other person and, and there's no romantic connection, then you shouldn't get married. In the ancient world, that wasn't even possible because you oftentimes were meeting your bride for the first time during the wedding ceremony, and there was no, there was no relationship, like none. You weren't even acquaintances. There was not that far back. Right. I mean, certainly my grandparents were that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they had arranged marriages yep. and things like that. So it's really not that, right. that long. No, and that's, that's when you... When you start, when you really start looking at the history of marriage, you realize exactly how recent this like romance innovation is. I mean, it's a very, we're we're an aberration in the whole scope of human history. Um, our divorce rates are also a lot higher, so I don't know. Uh, you can do that what you want, but um, there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. But uh, it is interesting. Um, and so, so Rome, my point with where I was going with all of that was the idea that that love and romance were things that you hoped came in your marriage, but they weren't things that you started with. They certainly weren't things you built your marriage on. And if you didn't get them, too bad for you. I mean, sorry. You know, it didn't, they didn't care about things like compatibility and stuff like that. You did, marriage, was, marriage was much more about the overall health of the community. It was about producing children, you know, so that, that was it. And, and that's not how it is today. We have a very different concept of what marriage is, what it's for, the, the aims and the goals of it. So, anyway, 
That, that's fun, right? There we go. <laughs> I know. Oh, we. I thought about it. I thought we. Um, that was one thing. I thought, man, that would be an interesting thing to talk about relationships and all of that. Maybe we'll do that in part two. Um, tonight, I want to talk about sacrifice, though. So, uh, th- this is something I think that we we really don't know much about ancient sacrificial systems because. Since Jesus' death and resurrection, the Christian tradition has explicitly confessed we don't need animal sacrifice anymore. And so we just haven't had it for 2,000 years. Our culture has changed dramatically since the days of animal sacrifice. Now, there are still a few cultures in the world that practice these things, um, but they're not in America, and uh, they're not around us, certainly. And so, again, these it, it just it, like we've talked about several times in this class, it just seems really strange because we're on the outside looking in and and we don't understand from the inside the the logic that made this whole system work so we're going to try tonight to get through at least some of it um now in the ancient world not not and actually specifically not in the world of the bible but in the culture surrounding the bible and even in like places like greece right uh sacrifices were explicitly done in order to feed the gods Okay, so I have this quote here. It's from a Roman uh, novelist named Lucian, and he's actually, he's writing, uh, uh, he's writing as Zeus, who is lamenting the decline in the number of sacrifices that people are doing. Okay, so it's like Zeus is looking down from heaven slash Mount Olympus, and he's complaining that people don't sacrifice like they used to in the good old days. And so here's what he says. To feast, and he's talking about a guy who's sacrificing, right? To feast 16 gods, right? To provide a banquet for 16, 16 gods. He has sacrificed only a cock, a rooster, right? And a wheezy old cock at that. And four little cakes of frankincense that were thoroughly well mildewed. And yet he has promised whole herds of cattle when the ship was drifting on the rock and was inside the ledges. So here again, we have, you know, apparently this guy's ship was in danger and he couldn't get it away. And so he, he made this grandiose promise to Zeus, like, Zeus, save us and we'll sacrifice to you whole herds and herds of cattle. And so Zeus apparently has intervened, saved him, and then he just gets a little rooster, a wheezy old rooster, you know, and then a, a bunch of mildewed frankincense cakes that they were probably going to throw away anyway, right? But the, the, the whole thing that's interesting there is that it was explicitly feasting. The God, like this sacrifice was meant to be a celebratory feast for the gods. So whatever they were doing in the sacrificial ritual was in some way feeding the deities. Okay? And that's that's a across the board, that was how ancient peoples saw sacrifices. That's why you did them. Okay? Um and that's interesting because uh, probably many of you, uh, if you've been in church any amount of time, have probably uh, read stories and t- heard about how important a table was in the ancient world. Um, tables were typically, houses were pretty small, and so and the weather was usually very nice. So tables were typically in, a, in public view, either in like an outer courtyard of your house or maybe even just outside of your house. But you would have a big table, uh, and you, you laid down, you reclined at the table, you laid down and ate, and your feet were pointed away from it, and you ate at the table. And it was all, uh, when you did these kind of public feasts, which were regular things, um, everyone in the village could see who you were eating with. Okay, so the table... And again, you're talking about a village, right? So it's a couple families or something like that, these extended families. But everyone could see who was at your table, who was sharing the table with you. And so the table became um, the kind of the definition of your Facebook's, uh, Facebook, of your social circle. I was going to say it's sort of like Facebook friends or something like that today. But we don't, we don't really have a good corollary to that today. But, but again, literally, like every time you ate a meal, people could see 
what your social network looked like. You know, who were you connected to? How high were you on the social ladder? Were you important? Then you're going to have other important people at your table. Were you not so important? Then you're not going to have important people at your table. This is why, and we're going to talk about Jesus a lot more next week, but this is why the Pharisees kept getting mad at Jesus because he was a respected rabbi and he kept sharing the table with disrespectful people. Right, and so they kept. They, that's why they, they kept getting mad. They're like, "You can't do that, man! Like you're you're upsetting that you're rocking the boat. You're upsetting the social balance. You're not eating where you're supposed to be eating." And of course, Jesus always had snarky replies. We'll look more at that next week. The point is that in these villages and these, you know, Beit Av, the house of the father, all that stuff we talked about, uh, the whole social network revolved around the table. Everything was about the table. So if you wronged someone, you had to bring them uh, a meal. Right. And you I mean, again, they would you if you know, if if this table right here is, you know, they're all friends and Angel does something to make everyone else mad. All of a sudden, she's not going to be at the table anymore. And all the rest of you are going to know it. Be like, I don't know what happened, but Angel wasn't at the table last night. Like, uh, you know, and if she wants to get back in their good graces, I mean, literally, she has to basically bring them a meal, bring them food. And, and all like all of the social relationships were worked out over the meal and around the table. Okay, it really was the center of the whole social network. Now, what's interesting about that is that the sacrificial system, the the logic, the symbolic logic of it operates inside of this idea of you know the house and the table. And so, what's happening, and when you're basically when you're offering sacrifices, is you're bringing a meal to God. Okay, now there's there's like. I don't know. There's like five or six different daily sacrifices. And then you have like the Day of Atonement sacrifice we looked at a couple weeks ago. You have the Passover sacrifice, which we'll talk about more coming up. But you had, you know, you had all kinds of different sacrifices. But in some way or another, they all operate around this kind of table logic where this is God's house and you're coming to God's table and you're bringing God gifts specifically of food. You know, it was always grains or some kind of an animal. So um, I kind of want to walk through a couple of the major uh, the major kinds of sacrifices and, and just show you a little bit how this logic is operating. So first of all is the sin offering. And this is, again, you've done something wrong. You're, you know, you're, out of, you're out of God's grace. And you want to make amends, right? You want to get forgiven and all of that. So what's interesting is, again, the way this happened in the ancient world, when you wronged someone else, you had to bring them a gift. So uh, what I have for you, there's a text from Genesis 32. This is uh, the story of Jacob and Esau. If you, if you don't know the story, briefly, they're twins. Esau was the elder brother, which meant he was the heir. And basically, through a series of uh, devious actions, Jacob steals his birthright and steals his place as the heir. And so Esau decides he's going to murder Jacob. So Jacob heads for the hills. He bails out, leaves, and he's gone for several decades, okay? And basically, this, Jacob continues this pattern of tricking people to get what he wants, and he ends up burning every bridge that he has, and he has no choice but to go back home to where his brother is. And the last time he saw his brother, his brother was, trying to, was actively plotting to kill him. So it's been several decades. He doesn't know what's going to be going on when he gets back. So here's his plan. Jacob stayed where he was for the night. This, he's on his way back. He's got all his family with him and everything. Right? Then he selected these gifts from his possessions to present to his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. So a lot of livestock. He then divided the animals into herds and assigned each to a different servant. 
Then he told his servants, go ahead of me with the animals, but, you know, keep some distance, right? Space them out a little bit. And he gave these instructions to the man leading the first group. When my brother Esau meets you, he will ask, whose servants are you? Where are you going? Who owns these animals? And you must reply, they belong to your servant Jacob, but they are a gift for his master Esau. Look, he's coming behind us. And then he basically tells the second and third guys, do the exact same thing. Say to Esau, you know, say the same thing. And then be sure to tell him, and Jacob's coming too. Okay? He wants, he wants it to be very clear. Jacob's coming back, and he's giving you gifts to say he's really, really sorry. Okay? And he, I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of livestock. So Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me. When I see him in person, perhaps he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent ahead while Jacob himself spent that night in the camp. Now, to us, this sounds a lot like something we would call bribery, right? <laughs> it does. I mean, it does. You're trying to buy someone off, or you've done something, or, you know, like that kind of like apologetic, like, oh, I forgot something important. Here's some flowers or chocolate or, you know, something like that. In the ancient world, this was considered the right thing to do. When you wronged someone, you made it right by giving them a tangible gift, right? And it wasn't considered disingenuous. It wasn't considered bribery. It wasn't like you were trying to get out of something. This was the appropriate response when you would wrong someone, was to give them. That was, that was part of the apology, right? It would be sort of like if someone didn't say, I'm sorry, today. You'd be like, well, I'm, I'm still waiting. Still waiting. You know, that, that's part. You just got to say that. Um, so... So this is, this is essentially the same idea that goes into a sin offering, right? When you sin against God, you bring God a gift, and God accepts it. And what's interesting about the sin offering is that the whole sacrifice is given to God. So you bring in, uh, and it was, it was actually graded, too, based on how, essentially, like, how either important or how wealthy you were. So if you were the high priest, it was like a whole bull had to be your sin offering because you're the high priest, uh, if it was actually a sin offering that was for the whole people, also had to be a bull. If you were a, a regular schmo and you were male, uh, I think then you had to bring in a male goat. And if you were a woman, it was a female goat or something. There's, and then if you were poor, it was like a couple of doves. And if you were really, really, really poor, it was some grain. Um, but so the idea was like, no matter who you are, there's an appropriate level of, of, of uh, sin offering that you need to bring. And then that was all burned on the altar. So in the temple... Uh, you had outside, of course, you had this altar for burnt offerings. It was not inside because you all know what happens when you set things on fire inside places, right? It doesn't end well. Um, so you had this altar outside where you burned up all of the things that were burned. And they burned a lot of stuff. And down here, you actually had a slaughterhouse where they would slaughter the animals and, and all of that, right? And then depending on the offering, basically, and you can see this, you can read through Leviticus and read through all the rules for the sin offerings, but basically as far into the temple as you're allowed to come is how far the blood of your sin offering has to come in. So again, if you're an average Israelite person who's only allowed to be out here, then the blood is, all the stuff is done right here on the, burnt, on the altar. If you're a priest who's allowed to come into the sanctuary, but not back into the Holy of Holies, then the blood is put on some stuff inside the sanctuary. And if you're the high priest, then you're the only person allowed back into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, then that's where the blood, for your sin offering, that's where the blood has to go. And so, so again, the, the blood comes as far as you do. And the idea is, again, we kind of talked about this uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, right? That sin is they, they, symbolically sort of like this thing that accrues on you and therefore also on the temple and then in some way on the world, right? That you're, it's staining or it's corroding. And so the blood was a, a way to symbolically cleanse or wash that sin away. 
And so wherever you were, you know, if you're a guy that hangs out out here, you brought sin this far into the temple or that much into the world, and it has to be washed away from wherever you are. As the high priest, symbolically, you're all the way in here, and so the blood has to go all the way in there. Does that make sense? Um, okay, so... Yeah, that's an okay way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's a, again, symbolically, that's the way it was, was that they're, they're washing the stain. Maybe stain is a good way to think of it. It's a, you know, it stains. And so it's, it's cleaning that off of creation. Um, and, and again, all symbolically, they didn't, there wasn't an actual like stain that grew on the horns of the altar that they had, you know, polish off. But it was a, by, by, by making this a, a ritual that they did over and over and over, it really made the reality of sin and what it does real to them. And it said every time they brought a sacrifice into the, into the temple, it said your sin has a real effect on the world. You know, not, not in some, not, not in a real like barnacle or stain kind of a way, but in a, in a way that it damages things that have to be put right. And so by symbolically putting it right, it's reminding you to go back out into the world uh, again, this is where Jesus in Matthew five, right? If you have, if some, if a brother or sister has something against you, go set it right with them. Then bring your sacrifice to the altar. I think he actually says, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go fix things with them, and then come back and do the sacrifice. Right? The sacrifice. And we're going to see this tonight. The sacrifice is never the point. The point is the justice that needs to be done in the world. The putting right of what was wrong in the world. Uh, the prophets. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> prophets say that over and over and over again. Um, Okay, so the main, the main purpose of the sin offering was to cleanse the temple, which was also symbolically cleansing the body and the world, right? It was to cleanse. It was to remove the, the effects, the consequences, the stain of sin. Um, okay, so that's the sin offering. The other, big one I want, and the, the other big one I wanted to talk about was the peace offering, okay? Um, the, now, this, this one I think is super cool. Because the peace offering is sort of basically like your ancient butcher shop, okay? Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have like a Kroger deli counter where you could just go down and buy ham. or Well, you can buy ham if you're a Jew anyway, right? Uh, roast beef, okay? Or goat or whatever. And so they actually wove the symbol of the sacrifice into the butchering process of the animal. So when you brought a peace offering... You brought it to the temple, you brought the animal to be butchered, and the animal was, was killed, and then the fatty parts of the animal were burned on the altar, which was then the smoke went up to God, and that was God feasting, you know, the feeding the God kind of mentality, right? And then the rest of the animal was given back to you to take back and consume with your family. And so when your family feasted, on this animal, God had also been sharing in that meal. So the peace offering was a celebration that you and God are at peace. And so when you shared in this meal with your family, it was, it was, a, it was a celebration of your right relationship with God. It was like God was, it was, it was again, it was basically like God has accepted you at his table in his home and you are God's honored guests. God is feasting you. Does that make sense? I think that's super cool. Um, all, all of it. Well, and what they would take the blood and again, they would do on whatever, very, but yeah, the sin offering was not consumed by anyone except for God because it was, because that, that was more like Jacob's thing. You know, Jacob didn't send some of the goats and keep the rest. I mean, that was all I've wronged you. Here's the gift, right? So it's not, I get any of the gift back. Whereas this would be more like, 
a friend invites you over for a, a meal and you say, what can I bring, right? You bring something, you participate in the feast in some way. And that, this is that same kind of an idea that you're, you're bringing something to offer to God to celebrate the peace that you have. And again, peace, peace is that, that biblical shalom, uh, which is actually not just a, you know, everything's fine, no one's fighting right now. It's, it's that seventh day of creation, that Sabbath, that everything is, everything is as it should be. The world is functioning the way God set it up. Everything is right in the temple, in the body, in the world. And so when you're, when you're eating the peace meal, that's what you're celebrating, is that, again, not just like no one fought with anyone else today. It's peaceful. No, but like the world is as it should be. It's a celebration. Okay, now, <laughs> this should raise some interesting questions. Because in paganism, and this would, again, all of the cultures that surrounded Israel were these pagan cultures, you had to feed the gods to keep them fat and happy. Okay? Or else, if you don't sacrifice to the gods, they won't bless you. Um, The character of these pagan gods, Baal, Marduk, any of of them, Chamash, we're going to talk about him later, is such that if, if they will not extend forgiveness or blessing to you, without sacrifice. You have to give them a sacrifice in order for them to do anything for you. So um, I include in there uh, a passage from the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation epic, and it's when Marduk and the other gods decide to create humanity. Essentially what's happening is that the gods are tired of working all the time, and they're like, Marduk, make us some slaves. Marduk thinks that's a great idea. Marduk's the chief Babylonian deity. So it says, when Marduk hears the words of the gods, their complaints, they're saying, oh, we're tired of working. You know, his heart prompts him to fashion artful works. This is what he says. Blood I will mass and cause boned to be. I will establish a savage man, human, you know, shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So humans are going to work so that the gods can be fat and happy and relax, right? The way of the gods I will artfully alter. So Marduk decides that one of the gods who opposed him in the big war, remember this is the combat mythology we talked about in that second week, um, he decides that one of the gods who fought against him should be sacrificed to create this new race of slaves. So the council of the gods identify, they're like, that that one, choose him, he's the one. Um, So it says it was Kingu, that's one of the other gods who contrived the uprising and made Tiamat rebel and joined battle. So they bound him, uh, holding him before Ea, who's another one of the gods. And they imposed on him his guilt and they severed his blood vessels. Out of his blood, they fashioned mankind. He imposed the service and let free the gods. So there's, that's in the Babylonian worldview. That's the reason and purpose and method by which humanity was created. The gods were lazy. They didn't want to work all the time. So Marduk killed one of the rebel gods, used his blood to fashion humans, and then set it up so that humans had to work and slave and sacrifice so that the gods could lay around. Okay? And this is, this is essentially the worldview that most, other, you know, most of the pagan uh, cultures had, was that humans exist to slave for the gods, to work for the gods, so that the gods can just kind of do whatever they want. Uh, and therefore, that's why, that's why you had to sacrifice to earn these gods' blessing. If you didn't feed the gods, they got grumpy like we do when we don't eat, right? And then they would not give you rain or not give you children or send calamities your way, whatever, you know, because they're mad at you because you didn't do what they created you to do. Um, 
And what I think is interesting about that is I think often we end up with that kind of a picture of our God. That God cannot forgive us without sacrifice. That somehow God is incapable or unwilling to forgive us without sacrifice. That we have to do things to earn God's blessing. Right? Or and 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 the problem that with that that when we put it that way, that what should be problematic about that is that if that is in fact the case, if God will not forgive us unless we offer him sacrifice, then that means that God is not free. That God's forgiveness is dependent on our action. That God gets grumpy, right, if he doesn't get food from us. If 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 our if whatever we're doing isn't nourishing him or contributing to him in some way, then that means that God isn't free, that God is dependent on us. And that's not, that's not who the scriptures confess God to be. And so you can imagine that the, uh, the Israelites had, had a hard time uh, connecting because all of the cultures around them sacrificed because their God needed sacrifices. And they worshiped because their gods needed worship. And, and if they didn't do these things, these rituals, then their gods got angry with them and punished them. So I want you to look at Psalm 50 with me. I have it on your sheet there. You can, you know, if you have a Bible, you can look at it there too. But this is, uh, this is the, from the middle of the psalm. And it's God, it's, it's, it's basically God setting the record straight. It says, okay, people, pay attention, right? Listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, Israel. This is why I'm mad. I am God. I'm your God. I have no complaints about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings that you constantly offer. But I don't need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. For all of the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountain and all of the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat the, the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? No. I mean, no, this is the answer, right? It's a rhetorical question, but no, the answer is no. I don't eat these sacrifices that you're sending me. Instead, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. Then call on me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. So now you see this over and over and over in the prophets is that the Israelites get caught up in the sacrificial system and they basically just sort of start ignoring the things that God is actually telling them to do. And so several of the prophets, uh, Isaiah and Hosea, for instance, in particular, basically say, you guys have to quit killing things until you start acting right. Okay? All you're doing is wasting meat. Stop it. That's essentially, that's essentially the, you know, he's like, he's like, I don't need this stuff. I don't need, I don't need a temple. The world is my temple. I don't need animals. I made them all. I can make more if I need to. Right? I don't need this stuff. You're not doing this for me. There's nothing about your worship that is for me. It's for you. Worship is meant to make you act justly, right? It's, ma- it's meant to make you more like me. It's meant to help you follow my way. And if it's not doing that, knock it off. <laughs> like, stop. Stop killing things. Stop it. Uh, it's, it's really, and some of the language that some of the prophets use, I think I have Isaiah 1 in your homework this week. I mean, it's, it's really astounding how, how anti-sacrifice God sounds. You know, because again, they were his idea. This all came from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? I mean, God, God's the one that said to do all these things. And then he comes back around and he's like, stop it. Stop doing these things because you're missing the point. The point isn't the thing, right? And again, you see this, uh, for instance, Jesus, again, going to Jesus, right? 
in the New Testament, uh, they're walking on the Sabbath day when you're not supposed to work, and they're hungry, and so they pick some grain and eat it. And the Pharisees are like, you can't work on the Sabbath day. Shame on you. And Jesus goes, okay, do you think that God made humans so that he could have a Sabbath day? Do you think that God set up this ritual and then made people so that they could just support the ritual? Like, no. He said the Sabbath was not, or what, how does it go? I always get it backwards. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. You can say this about this, right? The, we were not made to, to go about doing these rituals. That's what the pagans believe. Right? The pagans believe the gods needed these rituals, and so they set them up and then created us to do them, to keep them fat and happy. And Jesus comes along, in the pro- following in the prophetic tradition, and says, no, 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 you guys have it all backwards. These things are meant to help you be the people that God created you to be. They're meant to point you in the right direction. They're meant to form you into the right kind of people. They don't exist in and of themselves for themselves. Right? And so if they're not, if they're not working, you need to you knock it off. Right? Leave your sacrifice at the altar and go do the right thing and then come back and sacrifice. Because there's nothing that's going on here is actually fixing you. Right? That's, not, that's not how that works. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so what's, the real, what's the real deal with sin then? Uh, another, another way to ask this would be, why does, why does God hate sin so much? Okay. Is it, you know, is it because it offends his delicate sensibilities? I'd say, no, it's not. Um, so let's look at that. Let's look at, uh, this is the section called the weight of glory. Because when you, when you start talking about worship in the Old Testament, particularly, you get into this word glory very quickly. Okay. God's always talking about his glory uh, and things like that. And so, in fact, in one place in Isaiah, he says, I will not share my glory with anyone, right? Uh, and he's, he's specifically speaking about idols and other gods and stuff like that. So the, the Hebrew word uh, that's translated glory is actually the word kavod. It's a C-A-V-O-D. And it means, literally, the word means heavy or, or weighty, like heavy, like a, like a weight. It, it's something that is glorious. It's something that's heavy. Or weighty. It, it you know, has weight. So that's why on the top of that page I have gravity wells there. Because I think this is the best analogy I've found that really helps us understand what it means to say that God has glory. Specifically, that God has the most glory. Or that God, it's not good to share God's glory with someone else. Uh, if any of you are nerdy enough like me to know what gravity wells are, this is how scientists talk about space and how gravity works. And so if you imagine space as a flat plane, then gravity, you know, something, that's, something that has gravity, sinks down into that plane and if something that's smaller comes along it kind of rolls around in the funnel in the well in the gravity well that that object creates so obviously as a general rule until you start talking about crazy stars and stuff like that the bigger things have more gravity right the sun's bigger than the earth so it has more gravity jupiter's bigger than earth so it has more gravity earth's bigger than the moon so earth has more gravity Whatever is heavier creates a bigger gravity well, and then everything else orbits around that. So all of the planets orbit around the sun. The moon orbits around the earth, things like that. Satellites orbit around the earth, all of that. That's actually a pretty good way to think about glory. If you ask the question, what's the heaviest thing, right? What, what pulls the deepest down into your life? What in your life causes everything else to revolve around it? Does that make sense? And so, obviously, the biblical answer for that should be God. 
God should have the most glory, the most weight, the, the most heaviness in your life. God should be the biggest gravity well in your universe. And everything else in your life should orbit around God. That's what it means to say that God has glory. And specifically, when we start talking about idols and other gods and things like that, um, we say that the reason that that should be the way it is is because there isn't anyone or anything else in creation that can bear that much glory. And so uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Elijah on Mount Carmel on Sunday, uh, when God quit sending rain and left it up, left it to the rain god that they were worshiping, no rain came because Baal didn't create the heavens and the earth. And so he's incapable, actually, of sending rain. He can't. Only God can. And so it's actually a mistake, as Israel found out, to put Baal in the center of your universe, to give Baal the most weight and the most glory, because Baal's not up to it. Baal's going to crack and crumble under all that weight, because he can't, he can't handle it. And you're going to end up really, really, really thirsty. Does that make sense? So that's when, when we're talking about glory, and this is, this is why God says over and over again, I'm not going to share my glory. Right? It's not because God is selfish. It's not, it, it can end up sounding like God's like a, a spoiled kid in a sandbox. He's like, no one else can play him. You know, That's how it can sound sometimes. And God's like, I'm jealous. I'm not going to share my glory, all of that kind of stuff. But it's not. It's actually because God knows... One, God knows that we're easily distracted. God knows that it's easy for us to end up putting more weight than we should on various aspects of our lives. God knows that about us. And two, God knows that those things can't bear that weight. That all of the things that we're tempted to put in the center to give the most weight are not, again, they're not, they're not usually bad things. Rain isn't a bad thing, right? But they become bad when we put wrong expectations and wrong weight on them, and they can't bear the weight, and so our lives crack and crumble because our priorities are out of order. And God doesn't want, God didn't create us for that. God doesn't want us to, doesn't want to see that anymore than any of you would want to see that in your own children, right? It would, it would make you incredibly angry and grieved if you saw your own children's lives crumbling and falling apart because of something that you could clearly identify as a problem. So too with God. Right? There's a re- I mean, uh, the reason that God hates sin is because sin destroys his creation and his children. It's as simple as that. So, let's spend a little bit of time talking about what an idol actually is. And we have, oh yeah, we're doing great on time. Any que- okay, well, let's stop. Any questions, comments? We're about to move in another big chunk. So, I want to just make sure we got all of that pretty okay. All right. Okay, good. Let's talk about what idols actually are then. Because... Uh, we tend, I think, to think of idols as little statues uh, that we can, you know, bow down in front of or not. And we don't do that. Uh, in fact, have any of you visited the, Hin- the Hindu temple that's in Beaver Creek? Okay. That would be a fun field trip sometime. Um, Hindu, Hindu religions still use idols. They use, and so if you walk in, there's, you know, there's a lot of Hindu gods and goddesses. So when you walk into, uh, I haven't been to the one in Beaver Creek. I've been to one in St. Louis before. Um, they have tons and tons of little alcoves 
where the different gods are represented. And if you're a Hindu person, you probably have one or two deities that you're most connected to. And so they'll have a, you know, they'll have a shrine in there and they'll have a little statue of that God and paintings of them and all kinds of other stuff. And your worship ritual is going to actually be to go and uh, have some kind of ritual in front of that statue and you'll bring them little food gifts and stuff like that. It's, it, that, I mean, that's still most modern Hindu worship. So, um, so that's, I think, how a lot of times we tend to end up thinking about idols. You know? and so because we don't do that in Western culture, it's easy for us to think, well, we don't have any idolatry problems. Um, but I think if we can really dig, dig down to how idols function in the ancient world, it will help us to reflect. And this is what we're going to spend a lot of our time next week on, right, is idols today. What are, you know, what are the American idols, not just the TV show? <laughs> Uh, so what's interesting is, again, that in ancient Israel, they were surrounded by cultures that all had their own deities. I mean, every, every little country. And when we say country, I mean, you know, there's, there was like a, a hill here and a, a hill there, and that was two different countries. You know, they had two different, two different I say hill, it's like a little mountain. Uh, it's not like a, but they had, they, had, uh, they, had, they were different nations. They were all very close. There were a lot, I mean, when you go, if you've ever been to the Holy yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. And, and because, you know, the Bible talks about the hill country of Judea, like it's no joke, they're pretty mountainous. And so, yeah, each, each, basically each, like, each relatively big hill would warrant its own tribe controlling it, and there'd be a temple on top of it or something like that, and, and they were just all right there. So when, if you read through the book of Judges, and it seems like there's like 150 different countries that are always conquering Israel, it's because they work. They're, you know, all right, right there. Uh, and they always fought all, all the time. But each one of those individual nations would have its own god. So yeah, like Huber Heights would have whatever deity they worship, and Xenia would have one, and uh, you know Kenwood would have one, and Dayton would have one, and Beaver Creek would have one, and, and so on and so on and so on. And uh, when we understand that, it helps us make sense out of some of the more disturbing stories in the Old Testament. They don't become less disturbing, but it just helps us understand them a little bit better. So let's look at Genesis 22, which is Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac. Sorry if I spoiled in for you. Um, so here it says, uh, so again, what's, what's happening here is, uh, you know, Abraham had not had any, any children and then God came to him and said, Hey, you're going to have a kid. Then like 15 more years go by and he still hadn't had a kid. And then finally he has a kid. This is Isaac. Okay. So it says sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes. He replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes. Isaac, whom you love so much, go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Uh, we didn't cover burnt offerings, but they're exactly what they sound like. It's, it was another total just gift to God. You brought grain or an animal or whatever, and you burn, put it on the altar, and you burn the whole thing. So this is a, there's no eating of it or anything like that. So this is basically just go, burn your son, cons- all consumed up, and that will be a sacrifice to me. <clears throat> It says, when they arrived uh, at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from the heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know truly that you fear, fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. 
Then Abraham looked up, saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which, which means the Lord will provide. Anytime, by the way, just to review, anytime you see the Lord in all caps in the Bible, that's the divine name, that's Yahweh. Okay, so that Yahweh will provide. Now, we find this story disturbing because anyone who has children, and actually anyone who doesn't have children, cannot, off, cannot imagine offering up their child as a sacrifice. Okay? But the question in these ancient, ancient cultures was a question of weightiness. What's more important, your God or your kid? Right? And if you give the God your child, then you're showing the God that they're the most important, that they weigh more. Right? That they are, if it comes down to it, you're going to choose God over the kid. And child sacrifice, because of this reason, was an, it was an accepted practice in these early pagan tribal religions, like the Canaanites, like all these hill country, all these hill tribes around. So, what's important about that is today, that strikes us as like completely insane. Right? We're like, I, oh. but for Abraham, it would not have been an unusual request. It would have been a painful request. Okay? It wasn't like they enjoyed sacrificing their kids. But it wouldn't have been unusual. Because what we forget about Abraham is that he grew up in these pagan tribal cultures. And he didn't know this God until he came and spoke to him one day. There was no Jewish people. There was no temple to Yahweh. Abraham was just some schmo living in Ur. And all of a sudden, this God appeared to him one day and said, I want, you to, I want you to pack up and move to my land. And Abraham said, okay. And so Abraham doesn't have any good reason, until this point, to think that this God who is speaking to him, who's been providing for him, is a fundamentally different kind of God than Baal or Chemosh or any of, any of his neighbor's gods. Right? I mean, they, they've never had a conversation about it. So the point of the story is that this is where this is where God says Abraham I'm a whole different kind of God. Because Baal or Chemosh or any of these other gods wouldn't have stopped him. They would have said sacrifice your son and again all these practitioners would have said okay or they would have said no and then they would have suffered the consequences, right? Yeah. Mhm. And and again, see today today if God asked any one of us to sacrifice a kid, we'd be like there's something way wrong. You're not that like that's not who you are. You're not you don't work that way. Right? But Abraham for Abraham all the gods worked. That was that was what that, that was part. It wasn't fun. It wasn't good. It wasn't like warm and fuzzy, but it was a, it was a thing. Like, when things got bad enough, that was like sort of like, I'm all in, you know? It, so, so again, for instance, when Israel was worshiping Baal during that three-year period, when there was no rain, it's, it's unimaginable that some of them had not sacrificed their children by then. Because in a three-year drought in an agrarian economy, things were that desperate. And that, that would have been a, a last-ditch like sort of a Hail Mary. Okay, nothing else has worked. This is the last thing we have to try. Baal's not listening to us. 
do it. Does that make sense? And so again, what's really important about this story, I mean, there's a lot of things that are really important about the story, but one of them is that from the beginning of, I mean, it's Genesis 22, right? We're practically at the very beginning. God is clearly proclaiming that he is a fundamentally different kind of God than all of these other deities in the neighborhood. He's saying, no, I I actually don't welcome child sacrifice. And so, Abraham calls this place Yahweh provides. Because it's a reminder that you you don't earn God's affection. You don't earn God's favor. There's no Hail Mary passes with God. God will provide. Right? No one, no one could call Baal, Baal Yerah. Baal will provide, because Baal doesn't provide unless you provide for Baal. Right? And this is God saying, I don't know, I don't work that way. I'm a different kind of God. And again, we hear that echoed over in the psalm, in Isaiah, right? I don't need your food. I don't need your animals. I don't need your sacrifices. I made it all. If I wanted, I can make more. This isn't about me. It's about you. And here for Abraham, too, right? It's not about God. It's about Abraham. Knowing that he's faithful. Knowing that he fears God. Okay, now it's going to get real fun. We good with that so far? Okay, we have about 20 minutes left. So let's go to the first two commandments. And then big, the Big Ten, right? This is the, so the Ten Commandments, uh, when the Israelites are freed from Egypt, and they come to the edge of the desert. They come to Sinai, so I got another little mountain. And God comes down to the top of the mountain, and it's all burning, and there's like a firestorm and all kinds of very spectacular things going on. Moses goes up the mountain and receives the covenant, right? The terms of the agreement, because God said, if you will be my people, I will be your God. And they say, yes, we agree. And so Moses basically goes to get the terms of the contract. That's what the law is. That's, that's God saying, here's what it looks like to be my people. You said you would be my people. Here's what that looks like. So they get the law. And the Ten Commandments are pretty much universally considered to be the summary. You know, if you boiled it down to ten, boom, 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 boom. That's what, it, that's what this, is the, this is the whole law. All right, summed up in these ten. So the verse two are here. I am the Lord your God who rescued, and again, Yahweh, right? I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of an uh, of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, I Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other god. Again, there's that idea of sharing glory. Right? I'm not going to do it. Won't tolerate it. It'll kill you. Now there are two separate commandments here, but they're obviously related. The first one is this idea of not worshiping other gods. Um, now, today, Christians are pretty much universally monotheists, right? We believe in only one God. We know that his name is Yahweh, that he exists eternally in three persons who are one God. But the Israelites, much like Abraham, were not strict monotheists. They, they understood that there were these other gods out there. And even here in Exodus, God does not say, I'm the only God. Those other ones don't exist. Don't worship them. He just says, I'm your God. Don't worship the other gods, Right? And so what's really interesting, and guys, I'm, this story that we're about to read, it's just completely insane, okay? Um, I don't, I, I'm not surprised I've never heard a sermon about it. Uh, I'm not surprised I've never heard a lesson about it, because we're going to read it together, and you're going to be like, there, you made this up, it's not in the Bible. But you'll look it up in your own Bible, and you'll say, okay, it is, he didn't make it up. Um, the Israelites believed that these other gods existed, and that they could affect reality. And that the reason that you don't worship them is not because they're not real and not because they can't do things, but because they will not bring you life. 
or they'll bring you death. So, in this story, in, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 3, Israel is battling Moab, who's one of those, um, one of those hills, right? Um, one of those, those countries. Um, in, if you go to the country of Jordan today, there is a city that's called Madaba. It's like it's one of the bigger cities in Jordan, and that's, that's Moab. That's the hill of Moab. That's, I mean, now it's all in Jordan, okay? Um, so the tribe that lived there at the time, their chief deity was called Chemosh, okay? And like the other pagan gods, he welcomed child sacrifice. So let's read this story. So they, they're fighting the Israelites. That's the setup that you need. When the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and attacked the Moabites, who fled before them. As they entered Moab, the Israelites continued the attack. The cities they overturned, and on every good piece of land, everyone threw a stone until it was uncovered. Every spring of water they stopped up, every good tree they felled. Only at Kir Haraseth did the stone walls remain until the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So Moab's making their last stand, right? When the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through, the op- break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So Moab is losing. This is the last city. All hope is lost. They have nothing left to try. Except, then the king of Moab took his firstborn son who was to succeed him and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now, what does it sound like went on there? Yeah. It sounds like their God answered their sacrifice. Now, I will tell you that I've read plenty of commentaries on this, and most of them do backflips to try to explain why this does not say what it says. Okay? But for me, it seems pretty clear that something happened here that was very directly tied to the child sacrifice. And certainly an ancient Israelite, when they read this story, would have had no problem saying, there is this other God, and it welcomes child sacrifice, and in this case, it worked. Okay? Now, I think we have a bigger problem with that today than an ancient Israelite would have. And there are ways to explain around it. Um, Certainly, whatever we say, we say that God allowed this to happen because, as we saw with uh, the showdown on Mount Carmel, if God doesn't want the pagan gods to act, they can't. Right? When God shut up the sky, no amount of sacrificing to Baal brought rain. So, whatever is going on here, um, God is allowing something to happen. And so whether God is the one who sent the wrath or whatever, uh, but, but an Israelite, uh, an ancient person reading this text, they would have understood that there is this other God. Now today, this may open a whole other can of worms, but we'll see. Today, we don't have, most Christians don't have a problem accepting that there are other kinds of beings in the world besides humans and God. Right? We call them angels and demons and, and all kinds of other stuff. And so I personally don't have a particular problem accepting that there are beings that receive worship from humans that can act in the world that are not our God. Um, again, whether we would call them demons or evil spirits or, or whatever we would want to call them, that there might be some actual malevolent entity who went by the name Chamash. I mean, okay. You know, um, when... 
when we when you know when we talk to our friends who are pagans, right, who participate in witchcraft and sorcery and are casting spells and things like that, there's never a place in the Bible where it says don't do those things because they're silly and they don't happen, right? What it says is don't do those things; they're evil and they're not what God has for you. Um, the Bible is fine with what we would call the supernatural, with the existence of these other beings and these other spirits that are happy to receive worship and sacrifice from humans. The Bible just simply says, don't do that. That's not okay. That's not good. That's not what God has. That, that only God is worthy of your worship and of your sacrifice. So here's just an interesting place in the scriptures, I think, where you see clearly the cost of following these idols, these false gods. I mean, it costs this king his son. So, I don't know. You guys want to talk about that? That's kind of like a big. I agree. That for the ancient world, um, they understood that these beings were real and that they had power. And it wasn't that we should not worship them because they do not exist. It was that we should not worship them because they bring death and not life. And so when we read these stories in the Bible, I don't think we have to discount them. I mean, again, I, I, I think it's fascinating that has anyone in here read this story before or heard a lesson on it? Or I mean, yeah, and, and that's, that's, I think that's a problem for me is that we have this story in here. And it, to me, clearly puts the stakes of idolatry in very plain language, but because it's weird, and because it doesn't really jive with the, the modern Western idea of who God is and, and all of that, we just we gloss over it, and we, we go past it. And I think it's, it's worth stopping and looking at and, and allowing ourselves to be horrified by it. Sure. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. There is no. I guess in my mind I was thinking there is no God besides the God. Mm-hmm. You know, in my mind, but I, I guess too I wasn't understanding the culture. Well, and to say so, in one sense, you're you're exactly right. If if by God we mean supreme Creator of the universe who has absolute power and authority, there is no other God besides our God. I mean, that's, that's a totally true statement. But if we mean by God, a supernatural being or a spirit, you know, a spirit that can work in the world and receive worship from people. Well, I mean, there's again, in, in the new Testament, there's all kinds of spirits, right? Um, and Jesus interacts with them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and so for me, that's why, you know, allowing the possibility that these pagan gods were actual entities that in some meaningful way could be around today, um, I, I'm, I'm okay with that theologically. I don't, think that, I don't think that is diminishing who God is. And in fact, there's a scholar I, I like a lot named Gregory Boyd who says that what the, what the scriptures teach, he calls it creational monotheism. It's to distinguish it from strict. So strict monotheism would say there is no other God. Right? There's only, only Yahweh, the triune God of creation, and no other spirit. So it's like Yahweh and us, and 
right? Then there's polytheism, which says like, oh, you know, all of the gods are spirits and they all sort of fight for position. So, you know, um, Zeus and Ares might be fighting with Baal and whoever, and you know, and there's no one chief god. It's just kind of like who you like best or what. That's polytheism. And then in between that, he's, he talked, well, and actually even then there's one called henotheism, which if you're a religion nerd, you're going to come across, which is basically there's a bunch of gods, but one chief god. So again, like the, the, the Greeks, Zeus is the chief god and all the other gods kind of work for Zeus and have to do what he says and, you know, whatever. But Zeus is in charge. But like Zeus didn't make everyone else. They all kind of came about in the same way. So it's not exactly like Zeus is in charge. He's, uh, you know, it's, it's like a soft in charge, right? Um, then there's creational monotheism, which says that there's one God, and he created everything, including all of these spirits. But he is not the only non-human, non-corporeal being who has power and influence in the world. Um, but he created them. They're all he created all of them. So, what's that? I mean, Satan. Yes, right. Well, yeah. I mean, and and uh, can Satan receive worship? Absolutely. You know, yes. So, Satan. Satan is a great example. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I, I think we need to take serious. And, and so again, Jeannie, to your point about you know foreign religions and other gods and stuff like that. Maybe they're worshiping nothing. Maybe they're not. Maybe there's some real. And, and so. Well, here's the issue. The issue isn't necessarily good or bad. It's this idea of, let's go back to the idea of weightiness, right? It's that if you put this other being in the center of your universe and you build your life around this other being, is it capable of giving you life? And no, the answer is no. It's not. Ultimately, that that being is not weighty enough to bear the authority of God. But not necessarily. Well, no, and so here's, here's why that's an important distinction for me, okay? If you have friends of other religions, you probably have friends that are, I mean, because you are all very nice people, they're probably also relatively nice people. You don't strike me as people who would have a bunch of jerks for friends. And so if you, if you set up this very strict, God is good and everyone else is evil, then you have people who are worshiping these other deities that you're saying are evil, but yet, like, they're not actually evil people, they're actually pretty good people, and that should be problematic for you. It should be problematic for all of us because you sort of become what you worship, right? And so if you just say, well, no, it's not necessarily that they're evil. It's just that they don't bring life in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and this, this, is why, this is why we're talking about this, right? Um, because I think it helps us. It helps us be good neighbors with our friends who are of other faiths, right? So, for instance, I have friends of other faiths who have had spiritual experiences that they want to talk about. And if I only believe in one God, then I have to say, well, you're, you're just wrong. You didn't have that experience. Well, that's not going to be a very healthy conversation, right? I mean, like, that's, that's not going to go anywhere. Any more than if someone came to you and was like, um, you know, well, God's made up. And so whatever cool spiritual experience you think you had, you are just, you know, probably had too much helium that day from the dentist or something like that. I mean, right. You'd be like, Oh, that those are fighting words. Right. I mean, so by being able to allow for the re, the existence of these other spiritual beings who receive worship, like it, it allows us to be able to have these conversations, not about your delusional, but just about saying like, well, how do you know which one brings life? And how, how do you know which ones are worthy 
worthy, right? How do you know which ones are worthy of the weight that you're ascribing to them? How do you know which, which God in the end will be God? I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, he didn't let Baal let it rain. Right. So why did he? Go ahead. I think it's almost the same as like when we look at Job. Mm -hmm. Like, why did God allow, you know, Satan to test him? You know. And it seems so unfair, mm-hmm. uh, but he did. He did. He, he did. Yeah. And, and you know, and Bible talks about false gods. You know, so uh, the Bible didn't say there's no other gods. It talks about you know false gods. Right. So uh, you yeah. have to know true God, right? Other gods. Well, and and to your point, I I think that's a, a one. Yeah. At the end, I don't actually know. I don't know why. Uh, that's why this story drives me crazy because I'm just like. This, this shouldn't be in the Bible. Like, this is, who put this in there? Seriously, you know. Um, but it's there, but it's there, and therefore we have to take it seriously. And um, ultimately, at the end of the day, we don't actually know, right? We don't actually know if God sent the wrath or if God allowed Shamash to send the wrath. Or, I mean, we, it doesn't. Yes. But, but again, Tracy's point is important. Um, in, in, in the Elijah story, right, no amount of dancing and cutting and screaming and sacrificing did work. Here it did. Why? God knows why. I'm not sure why. Go ahead, Steve. That's true. It's true. So what happened was these guys jumped them. They were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so they took off. This is what I'm looking at from the animal point. Yeah, sure. They took off after them and did very well mm-hmm. physically, militarily, mm-hmm. taking their tail all the way back to their home thing, then busted it down. We're still coming after them. Then they did something. And I haven't seen anywhere in here where it was saying God instructed each one of these acts. Right. Did it on their own? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this could be because they just kind of jumped the gun and Mm -hmm. became more brutal than God wanted them to Mm -hmm. be. I mean, if they're basically going to slaughter all of them and never receive any instruction really directly from God to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a. Yeah. Go ahead. You know. Give it a shot. Yeah. Could be. I don't know. That makes as much sense as anything I've thought of. So when he said go ahead, then whatever God they had, the Moabites had, God allowed right. them to act on their right. We have to say that because again we know from other stories in the scriptures that these gods cannot do anything that God does not permit. 
And so, yeah, however, whatever is going on here, and maybe it's, again, what Steve is suggesting. That, is the lesson here, could the lesson here be just because I've said that you're my people doesn't give you free reign to do anything you want to do when I'm going to back you up. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you have attacked these people, attacked you, you fought them off, then you chased them down, you were going to destroy the white market. I didn't tell you to do all that. Yeah. So yeah. when you extend yourself that far, you just, without me, you just might fail. Yeah. Yeah, could be. That'll preach, I think, you know. There you go. Steve's going to do a sermon on this text. The first one in first one in history, you all. <laughs> no, I, I really do think that. I mean, that's that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the problem in, in AI was that one of the guys uh, in the camp looted some things from Jericho that weren't, it was, yeah. And so, yeah, then God does not, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So, and it would be interesting to go back and read, um, I, the first time I came across this story, I, I did, I don't remember uh, if before there was any kind of sin in the camp or something like that. But again, I, I, Steve's story, I think that in the absence of an explicit divide command, you know, may, I think makes a lot of sense. So, okay, we got a couple more things I want to get through um, here. The, the other, so that's the whole idea of no other gods, right? It's not, not that there are no other gods, but you only worship the one true God. Um, the other issue there is making the idols, right? And again, the, these are images, the, the same word, idol image, it's the same, same word. And they represent the gods. And so God is forbidding representations of himself and worship of anything besides him. And what we'll talk a lot about next week is what it means that humans are the image of God, right? And that, when, that, we, that we worship God in the way we serve each other and in the way we serve God. Right, because that's what an image is. Is it's what it's what you worship. So there's there's something about the way we interact with each other that is integral to our worship of God. Um, but that's all for next week. So I want to conclude, and this is all 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 setting this up for next week. But things for you to think about is is essentially whose table are you sharing? Okay, because what we would confess as Christians is that God is fundamentally different from the other gods in our culture, whoever they are, whatever they are. That God is a fundamentally different kind of God. That God brings life and that these other false gods cannot bring us life. They cannot. They, they will promise it, but they cannot bring us life. Okay? And so uh, something you see a lot in the prophets explicitly is that idolatry, worshiping any God that's not Yahweh, is, is seen as infidelity, as unfaithfulness in the marriage. Right? That, that the covenant between humanity and God is a merit, kind of a marriage compact. And that uh, adultery, uh, spiritual adultery, idolatry is adultery. That you're cheating on God. That you're you're uh, sleeping with someone who's not your partner. Right? It's very strong language in a few places. Uh, so there's a couple of quotes I want to leave you with. One is uh, this book. Uh, this I actually said this. 
if, is there only, if there was only one book I could tell people they should read, it would be this book. Uh, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, his name is Andy Crouch. He's, a, he's an awesome thinker. The book's called Playing God. It came out last year. It's just, just amazing. Uh, but Andy, uh, if any of you are familiar with Christianity Today magazine, Andy Crouch is the editor of Christianity Today. Um, yeah, so he's, he is just, he's amazing. Um, so Andy says in Playing God, an idol advances a claim about the ultimate nature of reality that is ultimately mistaken. And since the creator God, Yahweh, is the ultimate meaning of the world, an idol is a representation of a false god. Implicitly or explicitly, all idols represent a challenge and counterclaim to the identity and the character of the true creator God. Like the serpent in the garden, they all raise the question of the creator God's truthfulness and and goodness, subtly or directly suggesting that the creator God is neither true nor good. So again, if you think back to that second week where we were talking about the combat mythologies, right, and that all these other gods around Israel were claiming that the fundamental truth of reality was was power struggles, fighting, combat, which again lends itself to child sacrifice, right? That 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 they they are they are claiming that the ultimate nature of reality is that you are a slave and that you have to work, that you have to earn your God's favor, and that's not true. That's not who God is. And so that's why they're idols, because they, they form us to believe the world is different than what it really is. They, they shape our imaginations away from what reality is. Um, so I want to I end us with Hosea 6. Uh, Hosea is a book that's all about idolatry, and it's particularly where you find a lot of the adultery metaphors. Because uh, God requires Hosea to marry a woman who is a prostitute, and she is unfaithful to him, and he takes her back. And God basically says, your life is going to be a picture of how I love Israel, that even though she continues to be unfaithful to me, I continue to, to forgive her and bring her back. And so there's a lot of the idolatry, adultery language. So Hosea 6 says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, now he will heal us. He has injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in the early spring. O Israel and Judah, what should I do with you, asks the Lord, asks Yahweh. For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. I want to show you love, not offer. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices, right? I don't. He's like, I don't care about the things you're killing. What I want, I want you to show love. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings. But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. And I skipped down a few verses and he says, Yes, I've seen something horrible in Ephraim and Israel. My people are defiled by prostituting themselves with other gods. O Judah, a harvest of punishments is also waiting for you, though I want to restore, or I wanted to restore the fortunes of my people. So you see a lot of those themes all coming together there, right? The idea of table and of sacrifice and of God saying, I don't, it's not about the sacrifices, it's about you and it's about knowing me and it's about showing love, right? And instead you're prostituting yourself with all these other gods. So this week, there's a few homework things for you, different verses to read, things to consider. And ultimately, I want you to be considering this week as we prepare for next week, whose table you're sharing. Right? Are you eating at God's table or is there someone else sort of at the center of your life 
uh, bring you know being weighty and, and letting your life revolve around it. Um, so next week we're going to talk about uh, the New Testament. We're going to talk about Jesus' table quite a lot. And then we're going to talk about the American gods, which should be super fun. Um, so any final questions or comments? Yeah, go ahead, Mike. I know we talk a lot about Lot, you know, right? Generally, Yeah. God did all this stuff to Job. Isaiah is another good example. Yeah. Can you imagine what his life must have been like? No. Could you imagine if one of our preachers said, well, God told me to marry this prostitute, everyone, so meet, meet our new pastor's wife. So let's pray together. God, as always, we're grateful to come and to consider uh, your scriptures and, and our lives in relation to them. Uh, we ask as we leave this week that you would uh, keep in the forefront of our minds who... Uh, whose table we're eating at during this week, uh, what sacrifice looks like in our lives today since we don't go to a temple, and uh, who is truly in the center of our lives, what we're placing in the middle, because we hope it's you. We want it to be you because we do believe your words, that you are the only one who is worthy of that place, who is uh, weighty enough, glorious enough to bear the weight that our lives uh, can be built upon. And so we ask as we go this week, that you would help us to be mindful of that and help us to have uh, a lot of discernment and wisdom as we have the courage to look at our own lives and consider where we are uh, out of a line, out of line, out of, uh, out of balance. Uh, and help us as we come back together next week to continue to pursue your truth and to become more faithful pictures of you. Uh, we love you a lot, and we thank you so much for this chance we have together. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus.